Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today we're looking at documentaries that were later turned into feature films. Docs versus Hollywood. Who does it better? We're comparing real-life stories that were done in documentary form and then later by Hollywood. And by doing that, we're hoping to explore the nature of filmmaking and truth. This idea came to us after Welcome to Marwin came out last year. It's a Hollywood adaptation of a documentary called Marwin Call. Now, I love that doc. It was about a man who lost his memories after a brutal attack and used dolls as part of his recovery. It's a very unpredictable story. I was blown away when I watched it, and it was not what I was expecting. And then 10 years later, Hollywood makes a version of it, and I saw the trailer, and I was like, oh God, what have you done to this perfectly good documentary that I really liked? I was a hell of a good artist, and now I can barely write my name. So my dolls have to tell the story. You know, I love Steve Carell, but even he can't save this movie. I'm sorry. So I was talking about this with our producers, and we got into all the other movies out there that have been adapted from documentaries. And joining me on the show today are producers Chantel Berganza and Matthew Amara. Last time we got together, we were talking about the Oscars, and we had a pretty good time. So today we're looking at three stories, The Times of Harvey Milk, Grey Gardens, and Dogtown and Z-Boys. These are all docs that we all loved or felt were very influential. So why did Hollywood have to go and do them again? And did Hollywood do a better job? Rolling. Hello, guys. Hey. Hi. Who are you? Uh, <laughs> who am I? I'm Matthew O'Mara. I'm a digital media producer and also the editor of the podcast. Uh, I'm Chantal Verganza, also a digital media producer here at TVO, and I'm a producer on the podcast. Welcome back, guys. So, Matt, you watched uh, a documentary called Dogtown and Z-Boys, which came out in 2001, yep. and then was later turned into a film called Lords of Dogtown. <laughs> We were the guys that would have been chosen last to succeed. We're from Venice. It was dirty, it was filthy, it was uh, paradise. Surf's up, man, yeah! Check these out. With these, you can do the same hard turns that you do on your surfboard. Wow. This wave breaks 24 hours a day, every day. And you know what, bros? We're gonna be the first to ride it. Uh, what was the doc about? So the documentary um, follows a group of kids called the Z-Boys, and they were the sort of vanguards of what we now now know today as skateboarding. Um, it starts off, though, not going into just their stories, but talking about the influences of skateboarding. So do you know where sort of the influences come from, the major influences come for the sport? I'd like to know. Yeah. It comes from surfing. Surfing culture. Surfing. Surfing, yeah. I feel like that makes so, sense. Yeah. It, I would not have put that together, actually. No? Well, because one's on water and one's on concrete. That's true. But, and they're both boards. And both have boards, both and... same sort of shape. But they also, at some point in the documentary, I'll put this clip in, they talk about how the concrete in Santa Monica became like their concrete waves. These perfectly tapered waves of black asphalt would allow for the virtual transmission of surfing-borne maneuvers to concrete. We were surfing these asphalt waves. That's what we were doing with the skating. So we, we had the surf skate style because we had the waves to ride it on. You know, surfing wasn't exactly the sport that we know today. 
where if you think of a surfer, it's like the coolest person in your mind. Like it's someone with like, you know, windblown hair and they look really tan and they're really cool. Like Patrick Swayze and Point Break. Yeah, Patrick Swayze and Point Break. But, you know, back then, if you were a surfer, you were kind of, you were someone who just looked directionless, at least in the minds of people who were around you. If you were a surfer, you were someone who was just, you know, drifting along life without sort of a plan. Um, and that was a public perception of that at the time. So, you know, it wasn't really seen as something that was cool. But then when skateboarding came along, a lot of kids were able to get into it. It was more accessible. You could buy the boards. You can go and skate basically anywhere you wanted. You didn't have to worry about reptides bringing you out to the ocean and, and killing you. Um, what about so, cars? <laughs> cars, yeah. That could, that could be a worry. Um but I'd be more it, worried about cars killing me than... Yeah, cars are kind of scary. Riptides. Riptides are, are no joke. Yeah, well, maybe they're... sharks. I'd be worried about sharks. Yeah, sharks not great either. Okay, so that was the doc. And then the Hollywood film Lords of Dogtown, which came out in 2005. Um, and I remember that came out and Heath Ledger was kind of just... On the up. On the up and coming. I think mm. he was going to be uh, in Brokeback Mountain that year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were some you know heavy hitters in the film. Yeah. Um, how did it compare? It, this is something that's it's very interesting for me because I, I don't, I'm not sure what order you two went in when it came to if you watched the doc first or the film first. Right. I actually mm-hmm. watched the film first. So I watched a Hollywood film first. I, I watched it and I, I was thinking, you know, there's there's no way that, you know, it was it was this raw. Like there's no way that, you know, it, the, the film is pretty dark. The area that they're in in Santa Monica, California is not very nice yeah, at the time. It was a tough place to live. Lots of poverty, um, like just very, very, very rough neighborhood. And the film reflects that. And it really gets into, you know, the personal struggles that each of these characters had. I didn't think that, you know, I thought they were kind of, you know, overblowing it a little bit. Um, But then I watched a documentary and I realized that they did a pretty good job in actually portraying at least some of the elements uh, or some of the things that the kids had gone through. Um, there are two moments in the film, actually, that were fabricated. Um, and according to uh, an interview from Hollywood.com with all the creators of it, um, there's a moment where Tony Alva uh, punches a uh, judge at the first skate competition that they went to. That didn't happen. So that, that was kind of a rawness that was created, I think, for the audience. But maybe that reflected Tony's, like, feeling at the moment or so something. dramatic license. Was yeah. Like he wanted to punch him, but maybe he, he wanted didn't. to punch him. But in the and film, then he gets to he, in a movie. You could. You can like, watch himself on screen. It's like, yeah, that's what I would have done. Do you think that the film got these guys' lives across more convincingly than the doc did or vice versa? I think the film was able to provide a very different lens at looking at... Tony Alva, Stacey Peralta, and uh, Jay Adams' life, I think they were able to do a good job at portraying, you know, what they were going through at the time when they were part of this legendary group. Watching the documentary, seeing the real people talk, and seeing the people who are portraying them, I think they did a pretty excellent job in getting across, you know, who they were at the time. Uh, Chantel, why don't you tell us about the films that you chose to watch? Um, so I chose Grey Gardens, which was originally bl- released by the Maisel's Brothers in 1975, um, and it's HBO adaptation. So Hollywoodish released on HBO, um, a feature film version of that documentary that was released in 2009. So there's a pretty big time difference between the two. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You know what I mean? It's awfully difficult. 
suppose I won't get out of here till she dies or I die. Who is she? It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Your trust won't last forever. The only way I'm ever leaving Grey Gardens is feet first. Great Gardens is an estate uh, in the East Hamptons area uh, that belonged to the Bouvier Beale family, um, who are also happen to be tied to uh, Jacqueline Onassis. So Edith uh, Ewing Bouvier Beale and her daughter, Little Edie, lived in this home for the entirety of their lives. Um, at a certain point, Big Edie w- had left her husband, was cut off from their vast fortune. They had lived very fabulously throughout uh, the 30s, 40s, 50s. And when she was cut off, uh, just lived alone in this house for the rest of her life with no money. Uh, the place began to fall apart, got infested with raccoons, cats, and her daughter stayed with her for the rest of her life, too. And they kind of just lived in obscurity for a very long time until the 70s when the local authorities tried to evict them from their home because it had become a health hazard, like a public health hazard. So it became a news item, like, oh, my God, the cousin and aunt of Jackie O are living in absolute squalor. Look at these crazy ladies, quote, unquote. Um, They would dress in, like, these very odd, not odd, they were actually quite beautiful, but just like very, they were just very, as they describe themselves, staunch characters. They loved to dance to show tunes with like towels wrapped around their head and weird skirts made out of various fabrics that they would just like find on the curtains and stuff. And they immediately became cult icons. So um, the documentary came out, people saw this very weird, funny, but also quite sad story about their lives. And... um, it had brought up a bunch of questions about the ethics of how the documentary was made. Did the Maisel's brothers take advantage of them by telling their story in this way? You can tell while watching the documentary that they really believe that they're going to be in this like feature film. And it's not really quite that. Um, but it adds to the feel of the documentary where you see these people trying to put on a show for you when it's really a doc about their lives. Um, so fast forward uh 30, or, 30 plus years or so, and the HBO film comes out. Um, yes. So what's that one? So about? that one um, stars Drew Barrymore as Little Edie and Jessica Lange as Big Edie. Perfect casting. Um, and it takes advantage of the fact that with the ability to tell a little bit of fiction, they film scenes from the past that try to describe or show you as a viewer how they get to this stage in their lives. So you see the past of them like living very richly, how Little Lady wanted to be a star and, you know, being a singer and a dancer. Um, you see their fall from grace and they try to show you in different ways how tense their relationship actually was as a mother and daughter just living together and um, feeling like each other has held each other back from the life that they were meant to lead. Hmm. So it, I, I, I don't know, it's it's a really good adaptation, but I'm not so sure if it's an adaptation in the sense that they expand on the story and they also include the Maisel's brothers. So there are characters who play them and they bring in some of that questioning about the ethics. Um, there's one scene where little lady asks the directors, you know, am I going to get a cut of this? I need, I need a contract. And they just kind of make a joke about it and it never gets discussed afterwards. Mother and I are very entertaining. That's true. So this movie would just be starring me and mother? No one else? That's the idea. Well, then, it looks like the Beals just stole the Bouvier movie. This is great. This is going to be my big chance. 
they kind of bring them in as like a part of the story because their choice to make this documentary is the reason why the story exists. So, yeah. Did, did the HBO version address that cult status of the doc at all? Kind of. I think I think they did it in ways where they, you know, one of the things, some of the things that made these characters so famous and um, so beloved were, you know, the, the strange outfits and the singing like tea for two. Um, they make those scenes stand out. They try to recreate the costumes and the, the looks, um, but in ways that are still, uh, I don't know, fashionable for 2009 is, is, uh, is really interesting. You see the, uh, the play on Broadway? T for two and two for C and me for you and you for me alone. See us to see us or hear us, no friends or relations on weekend vacations. You won't have it known, dear, that we own a telephone now. How do you think the performances? Um of Jessica Lang and Drew Barrymore compared to the real life Little and Big Edie. <laughs> they are, I mean, especially, they're both wonderful actors. I love Jessica Lang. Um, and I think they did a really good job. And I think here's maybe one of the ways in which you can't really ever completely recreate something. And maybe the point is that you shouldn't really try. There are scenes where you can tell they are just trying beat for beat to be big and little Edie, and that is by nature what acting is, but it just isn't the same. Um, There's this one scene where big Edie is sitting in a bed and she has like her old graying hair just like combing it out while she's singing this song to herself. And it's a scene taken directly from the documentary and it's really beautiful and kind of sad. She's just like combing her hair and singing to herself with these like big glasses. And Jessica Lange completely recreates it but it's Jessica Lang doing it I, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it it's so, it's almost as if you just you cannot recreate the Edie's they like just it's an imitation yeah hmm. why are they called big and little Edie uh, because they are both named Edie both so named Edie. mother is named yeah. Edie daughter is named Edie so big Edie little Edie and I think she's Edie oh, okay. senior Tech, you would say Edie senior but which is unusual they, I watched it last both of them last night I, I actually watched the First 20 minutes of the doc, and then I was like, this isn't for me. <laughs> and I turned it off. And then I started watching the HBO film, and I'm in love with Drew Barrymore. I think she's a great actress, and she's. I thought she was really great in this. She was, um, yeah. I just love that East New, New, Hamp- East New Hampton or whatever, <laughs> East Hampton uh, accent that she does. Um, and so I'm like, well, you know, maybe I should give the doc another chance. And so I watched the doc, and I, I was still kind of – I had a hard time digesting that one as much as the HBO film. I felt like the movie's definitely a little more accessible. Um, they are very interesting characters and actually made me start to think about um, kind of what our responsibilities are to our family members. Because mm-hmm. um, you, you learn that the they, they're actually um, – Big Edie has two sons – uh, who, I don't know, they're not really mentioned in the doc. At all. At all. But in the film, you learn that, uh, you know, they're trying to get her to move to a home and she doesn't want to sell the house. And they basically, that's the that's all you hear from them. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, if my mom was, like, in her later years, uh, which she will be eventually, um, you know, I'm obviously going to take care of her, but, and I think my sister would as well. And I just wondered why, would they just leave her, leave their mother and their, I guess their sister, uh, to live in squalor like that? I just, I, 
Yeah, maybe. It, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. It's difficult because this doesn't get addressed very much in the doc, and so you don't know. I mean, I'm sure the HBO version isn't trying to make anything up about the brothers and and their role in in what did or did not happen. But they try to get her to move. She doesn't want to move. You understand a little bit why she wouldn't want to, because it's the only thing that's in her name after being cut off from pretty much anything that she's ever owned. Like she's she that's the only thing she owns, and she doesn't want to leave. And I mean, you can identify that impulse in a lot of people who would never want to be moved from where they live. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you start to see over time, just like w- at what cost? Because she clearly cannot afford to keep the place. There's no running water at one point. There's no heating. Um, and there's wild animals. There's coming wild in. animals like. <laughs> Go into the bathroom in the middle of the hall, and it's really bad. It's it's bad. It's terrible. Okay, well, uh, I chose the Times of Harvey Milk, which is a documentary that came out in 1984, uh, and the film version Milk, starring Sean Penn, which came out in 2008. And the reason for all this merriment and gaiety, if you pardon the pun, is a man standing to my right, the first gay supervisor elected in San Francisco. His name is Harvey Milk. And uh, these films both look at the um, political campaigns of Harvey Milk, who was a city supervisor in San Francisco during the uh, late 70s. He was actually only elected uh, once. Uh, He was elected in, I think, 1978. Uh, He ran a few times before that, but he never went. And then there were some changes to the uh, way elections were held. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of San Francisco municipal politics, but basically he won and became the first openly gay man uh, to hold public office in the United States. And it was a time of, um, you know, change uh, for LGBT people in the U.S. You know, it was a, a few years after Stonewall, uh, the riots in New York that, uh, you know, led to, uh, uh, I guess, a great growing awareness of, of or acceptance of LGBT folks. And Harvey Milk was uh, a crusader for gay rights, but he also actually uh, was a crusader for a lot of different issues. He was uh, very interested in seniors' rights, uh, in minority rights. You know, he was uh, he was you know like a real social activist. And he um, both the film and the doc uh, capture him recording uh, his last will and testament. And in the film, it's sort of used as a, a narrative device sort of explaining, um, it's giving a lot of exposition, you know, about uh, his, uh, his work um, and, and just sort of moving the plot forward. But it's also in the doc as well. And uh, I think the reason I chose uh, these, uh, these films to look at is because I, I, I've always been interested in, in civil rights causes, you know, like uh, certainly the civil rights in the United States, civil rights movement, uh, with Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X was always something that was interest that was of interest to me. And then I uh, heard about Harvey Milk when this when the 2008 film came out, and uh, I thought, oh, this is interesting. And then um, this is not a spoiler; he was assassinated uh, in uh, 1978, along with the mayor of San Francisco at the time, uh, Howard Moscone. And you know, I mean, unlike Malcolm X or Martin Luther King, where there were uh, real forces of hatred. I think that motivated both their deaths and probably some, well, I don't want to get into conspiracy territory, but, you know, there's some questions about government involvement, involvement, police involvement. But in this case, um, the man who murdered him was another politician named Dan White, uh, who Josh Brolin plays in the movie, who um, 
killed both Harvey Milk and uh, Mary Moscone because it was, it was out of revenge. Revenge for what? Well, so uh, Dan White was uh, on the was the city supervisor along with Harvey Milk. He was elected at the same time. He um, wasn't very good at <laughs> being a politician. He couldn't wheel and deal uh, the way some of the other city supervisors could. And I think he felt uh, like Harvey betrayed him at one point in, in, on a certain issue or on a certain vote. Uh, Harvey said he would back him, then he changed his mind afterwards. Um, he ended up resigning because he wasn't able to afford to pay for um, how cost of living. He just had a baby. Um, he left the lucrative job and... To get into politics? Get into politics. Politics doesn't pay as well. So um, he resigned and then he decided to, uh, he wanted his job back. He wanted to go back to uh, City Hall. And uh, the mayor uh, wasn't for it, wasn't having that. And Harvey Milk didn't want him back on. And um, he snuck into the building and shot them both. And it's incredibly just, like it's it, it to me that was just what was made this inter- story so interesting because Harvey Milk sort of predicted his own death sort of like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X both did uh, he say something like, how? in in the in the recordings that he 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 made he he sort of alluded to the fact that someone may try to kill him he was getting death threats um you know because at the time again gay rights uh was very much not it wasn't like you know there was no talk of gay marriage at that point um, but yeah, it was still very tough to be openly gay. San Francisco at the time was um, uh, experiencing a migration of a lot of gay men and women, um, so it was a little more liberal than other parts of America were. But uh, yeah, he he had this I think inclination that he might be that he might be killed. But I think the fact that he got killed, and I should say Dan White was a homophobe. I mean, he wasn't like a liberal, uh, progressive person. He was a very conservative uh, individual. But his motivation was more like revenge right? <laughs> as opposed to just outright hatred of gay people. So the documentary was made after he was killed. The documentary, yeah, the documentary comes out in 1984 uh, and uh, narrated by the great Harvey Firestein. I don't know if you know his voice, but... Uh, I don't know that name. Maybe I know his voice. His um, voice is very, it's uh, very velvety, I'll say that. <laughs> velvety voice. <laughs> More and more men and women were arriving in San Francisco every day to take up the gay life. The Castro was booming. He's, uh, it, it comes out in 1984 uh, at a very, uh, also at a very um, uh, difficult time for, for gay people because that was when the AIDS epidemic was really at its uh, peak and, you know, there wasn't a lot of action being done, at least by politicians. Um, and I, I'll say this about the doc, you know, it's... Um, it's really focused on Harvey Milk's uh, uh, political organizing, uh, his grassroots uh, campaign to win elected office and to bring, you know, gay rights to the forefront. Uh, there was a Proposition 6, I believe, that was uh, being uh, touted in, in California, which would have basically fired any gay teacher. There was this moral panic about gay pedophiles or something like that. And uh, this had happened in other states as well. There was a singer by the name of Anita Bryant, who was very much campaigning, very homophobic, uh, campaigning against uh, um, the rights of gay people. So Harvey Milk was at the forefront of that, uh, of leading that um, fight, and they did eventually defeat um, uh, Proposition 6, and I think they were able to get a gay rights ordinance passed in San Francisco. It doesn't look at his personal life as much. 
Um, but the movie does. The movie does a little bit more. Uh, but that's an interesting part of the movie as well. So uh, the Sean Penn film, um, it starts with him meeting his boyfriend, played by James Franco, who's playing a character named Scott, uh, who's not really featured in the doc very much. And uh, they move to San Francisco. They open up a, a camera shop. And uh, Harvey Milk starts to get involved in grassroots organizing around gay rights, uh, becomes friendly with a lot of the other businesses in the neighborhood. And we see him a little bit more of his um, romantic life, I guess, is portrayed more. Him and Scott don't end up together like they break up. He eventually moves on to another guy played by Diego Luna, who's uh, his name, the character's name is Jack. He's Latino. Um, we don't really learn much about him. He's a little bit crazy, though, or I guess like the film portrays him as being a little bit um, eccentric and has some mental health issues, which eventually leads to tragedy. But um, that part of the film, I was actually a little bit like, I thought that could have been developed a bit better. Is there anything about you know why they wanted to take his story and make it into a Hollywood adaptation? Like, why do they want to do this? Yeah, so I think uh, it was written by a, a screenwriter by the name of Dustin Lance Black, who is himself gay, and uh, he saw the film, I think, in high school. And when he was starting to come to terms with his own um, sexuality, and uh, he felt like that was the time to, it was time to revisit his story, but, you know, tell it in, like, I guess, a, um, a narrative feature. And uh, interesting, that film came out in 2008 at a time when, um, you know, gay marriage was a hot topic. So you had moved from, you know, gay rights, you know, just being like, you know, de gay homosexuality was decriminalized by that point. But uh, there were efforts to ban gay marriage. I believe uh, Proposition 8 in California had just been passed. Obama had also been just elected. Um, and then eventually gay marriage would become legal in the United States. But, you know, there was a real push, I think, politically for gay for gay marriage at that time. And I think this film sort of is trying to address that in a way by showing, you know, Harvey Milk as this, you know, crusader for, you know, civil rights. But like, but also like, I mean, Harvey and Harvey Milk himself, I think, did this in real life. I mean, he dressed more conservatively when he started running for office. Um okay. He didn't have a ponytail. He had a ponytail and a beard when he was uh, first got to San Francisco. He shaved it off and then uh, became a little more, uh, I guess, presentable, quote unquote. So we've been talking a lot up to this point about, you know, Docs versus Hollywood, to use a very Hollywoodish uh, title. Um, would you compare the two? Like, would you say that one did the job of exploring the person who Harvey Milk was better or did one focus on one aspect of his life more? The doc definitely features his political organizing more. I would say the film does as well. The doc doesn't really touch on his his uh, his romantic life at all. There's one scene of him kissing a man. That's about it. I think you have to understand, though, when it came out 1984, you know, tough to be openly gay in society at that time. I don't think that the directors probably wanted to show too much of his um, sex life. Mm -hmm. But that being said, uh, the Hollywood film, um, one criticism I read was that it also doesn't really show his sex life. I mean, there's a couple of 
I wouldn't even call them love scenes, really. I mean, there's a flash of nudity, but it's not really, you know, a sex scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I don't know. I think they both, I think I think one thing that I, I really like about the Hollywood version is Sean Penn. You know, I think he really captures Harvey Milk. Uh, and he's an, he's an excellent actor, whatever you think of him in person, but... He's, you know, he he captures his mannerisms, his his smile. He's got this beautiful smile that he just always you'd always see in the in the archival footage him smiling, um, and he really does a good job of of bringing that across. And I think the one thing that I don't, I, I think it's kind of a, I think it's sort of a a flaw of the of the Hollywood film is that Harvey Milk had a lot of women that worked with him. And they're featured in the doc. They're not really featured in the film as much. There's one woman that is, but there were more women than that. Um, it would have been nice to have seen if it would have been nice for the film to have maybe looked at some people who were opposed to Harvey Milk, not Dan White, not just Dan White, but I mean, he had there was Diane Feinstein, who's a senator now, but she was on the same uh, city council as uh, Milk was, and they didn't get along with each other. So it would have been interesting if the film had played. Uh, different aspects of the doc than the doc did of his life. Um, I, again, I think they tried to do his show his romantic life a bit more, but it's still pretty PG. <laughs> Say if you had a friend who wanted to learn more about you know the fight for gay rights, and you want to suggest them to watch you know either the doc or the Hollywood adaptation, which would you tell them to go see first? Well, I watched the the Milk adaptation film first uh, when it came out in the theaters. And then I don't remember when I saw the the documentary, but I, I watched it, I think, a, a while after that. You know, I think you could watch either uh, in, in whatever order. There is a big gap of years between them. Um, and like I said, they do come out at interesting times in, in the life of uh, gay people in, 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 the, in the United States. So I think you're, you're – I would recommend both, and I would recommend you watch it in whatever order you prefer. Um, just know that they're – speaking to different things you have an issue it's more than an issue this is our lives we're fighting for do you think that a doc does a better job of getting to the truth of something say um the the lives of the women in gray gardens or the lords of dogtown or z boys or the life of harvey milk do you think a doc can do a better job of that than a film at least for a documentary it's not limited in terms of time you can have a documentary that's a three-part series that's, you know, four and a half hours long in total, and you can tell a lot of stories that are part of, you know, the subject that you're looking at. Like in the Z-Boys documentary, they talk to pretty much every single person who was in the group at the time, and they get their perspective about what it was like to be there in the moment, what it was like to be part of the group, um, you know, what they were thinking about while they were there, while this crazy stuff was happening. In the um, Hollywood adaptation, they're stuck to this hour-and-a-half-long format where they have to take a total of eight years of each of these kids' lives and compress it down to one year. So then the question isn't... I think they both get to the matter of, like, this is what it was like to be there. I think that's what both films are all both about. But it's what's omitted from that whole story, which is the flaw of the Hollywood adaptation. It has to omit so much... And, like, entire characters are basically gone from the film. And some characters are totally made up. There's a kid in the film named Sid, who is, like, one of the best friends of uh, Stacey Peralta. He doesn't exist. He's not a real person. 
They just put him in there. Um, fake best friend. Fake best friend, basically. Um, so that that I think that's uh, when it comes to the truth in this sort of debate between the Hollywood versus the documentary. It really comes down to you know what's omitted for time, in my mind. What do you think, Chantel? Yeah, I mean, we've spent a lot of time in the previous season talking about uh, how we assume when we watch a documentary and like rightfully so that what we're watching is true um i think maybe more in past like in more recent decades we've come to understand that the idea of how you make a doc and what you also include in a mid is a version of handling truth and there's no capital t truth when someone is responsible for telling another person's story that being said um a feature film i think if done well can get at stuff that either a documentary not necessarily can't do, but maybe hasn't done, um, or can make a comment on how the story was told itself. To go back to the Grey Gardens example, one of the things that I liked about the HBO version was its decision to open up, I guess, the the scope of the story to how the documentary was made, so that as a viewer, even if you've never seen the documentary, and maybe you'll watch it afterwards, you understand a little bit about how it was made, why it looks the way it does, and how it got to be the you know, the cultural touchstone that it became. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would just add, no, I, I think docs are getting to the truth in, in a way that is probably more natural to the subject, but I think a, fi- a feature film can get to the heart of a truth in a way that shows you things that the doc couldn't show you. So it could show you um, the interactions between Harvey Milk and Dan White that, the doc couldn't show you because it didn't exist. It could show you his murder as well, which is awful, but it happened. Um, so I don't know. I think I think that they're I think they're both equally important ways of telling a story. So long as it's done well. As long as it's done well, and, and in a way that I guess respect, respects the subject matter. That's our show. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, well, it's your show as well, so you're welcome anytime. Yeah. Yeah. This show is produced by Chantal Raganza and Matthew O'Mara, and our podcast manager is Hannah Sung. Thanks to our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. We'll see you at the next screening.